Hello? Do you hear me? Yeah. Hey, uh, welcome. My name is uh, Jon Sistermusson, and I'm the CTO and Vice President of Cloud Services at NetApp. And with me here is uh, Dr. Haukon Guðbjartsson. Good luck trying to pronounce that name. <laughs> Guðbjartsson. Uh, he, uh, he is a true pioneer when it comes to genome sequencing. Amongst other things, he is actually the one that launched the first publicly accessible uh, genome sequencing database in the world uh, when he was uh, uh, the CTO at uh, Decode. He's currently CIO at Wuxi Nextcode, and he is going to go over what it actually took them to move like heavy, intensive workloads like genome sequencing from on-premise and into the cloud. Take it away, Haukon. Thank you, Jose. I'm happy to be here and uh, tell you a little bit uh, about our company and how we have been using Amazon and uh, NetApp in the cloud to power our informatics solutions in the genomic space. Uh, let me see. So uh, I'm going to tell you, start telling you, for those of you who are probably not that familiar with genomics, uh, but uh, we have basically been seeing a data explosion in this field in the last years. And uh, the main reason is the modern sequencing instruments, or the high-throughput sequencers. They can essentially, in matters of a few hours, generate enough data to uh, sort of capture the entire DNA information in, a, in an individual. And think about it, this 15 years ago, when the first genome was really assembled, this was an international effort and took many years by multiple nations to, to you know, get together. But now, with these modern sequences, we can do this, as I said, in matters of hours. This provides lots of opportunities, allowing us to analyze the data and harvest, but it also comes with challenges. Challenges to manage this data, but also then the challenges to mine this data efficiently. I'm going to now talk a little bit about sort of the nature of this data. And so this slide here shows a picture of uh, sequencing data from four individuals in a so-called genome browser. And uh, one way to think about the genome browser is sort of like the Google Maps of the genome as compared map of the world. And what we are seeing is like a linear map. The genome can be thought of as a, as a linear sort of a space. And you're seeing the coverage of sequence data on the genome. And this picture here actually just shows us one, uh, actually less than one millionth, or one, one in the 300,000th part of the genome. One gene, the so-called BRCA2 gene, which is implicated in breast cancer. But if we drill in further, now we see one piece of the so-called exon, which is part of the BRCA gene. And now we're starting to see the data as it sort of comes from these sequencing instruments. These are small pieces of DNA, and they are, these are in a way random pieces of DNA that are gathered from, from the individual. And so the, to, in, in order to measure this properly, you need to sample the data with sufficient depth. Typically, we capture about 30-fold uh, redundancy to be pretty sure that we have a good coverage of every location in the genome. What you're seeing on this picture also are some differences. You see these yellow stripes here and there? These are essentially the differences in the individuals that we are measuring as compared with the so-called reference genome, which is sort of the genome representing the average Joe. And it's these differences that are the key to understanding the, uh, the genome. And if we drill in even further, now we are starting to see the nucleotides, the ACGs and Cs and Ts, and uh, they actually form so-called codons. Three and three of these nucleotides form what would be equivalent of the byte in a computer, uh, where the, co the nucleotides themselves are sort of equivalent to the bits. And now you're seeing also a consistency in some of these yellow differences, and these consistent differences are actually true mutations, whereas the, the sporadic yellow dots are actually essentially noise. So we, we need to capture this data. This is not a perfect measurement, nor is any measurement in, in principle perfect. So we need to have sufficient redundancy in the data. And to store this data for a given individual with 30-fold redundancy, it typically takes about 100 gigabytes or so in compressed format. There are some 
more uh, bat better compression format that make it slightly better compression, but this is sort of roughly the number of, of data footprint for the sequence read data. And if we compare this with the data, the genomic data in the past, when I started working for decode, so-called microsatellites were the, the way of measuring the data. And this is a, a little bit over than 20 years ago. And with the so-called microsite te technology, you could re measure so-called repeat areas in the genome. And we would typically measure about 1,000 data points per individual, 16 data points at a time. And so we would repeat the measurements until we had something like 1,000 data points spread over the genome. And later on, and 10 years later, came the so-called array technology, which is sort of like a chip-based technology, which allowed us to measure up to 1 million data points across the genome. And so that's what the blue sort of diagram is representing. So then you would have like a consistent, relatively high-density measurements across the genome. However, with the modern sequencing technology, we're capturing the entire genome. And there's a fundamental difference between these two technologies in the sense that with the arrays, it was predetermined what we would measure. The, the arrays were actually programmed to have certain types of mutations, whereas with the sequencing data, we are measuring everything that is found in that genome. And many of the mutations that an individual harbors are so-called de novo mutations. So nobody really knows what those mutations are. Many of them are very rare. So only the common mutations are sort of eligible for array technology, whereas the sequencing technology allows us to capture, in a way, the more high-impact mutations, typically the mutations that are causing huge problems, child diseases, and often somatic mutations, for instance, in cancer. And there is another thing that is very important in this, is that in, in the old days, when we had to do so-called fine mapping, because of the lengthy process of doing these measurements, we would only do them for specific individuals. We would first use these thousand data points and then go after a more fine, fine mapping of, of mutations, typically in a single gene that would possibly be a candidate gene for disease. So the data that we would have on a population would not be sort of uni, uniformly represented across the genome. Whereas with the sequencing technology, it's in a way a hypothesis-free way of capturing the data. And this has a fundamental impact on the use of the genomic data uh, for both research and clinical use. And so what we at VUXI are doing are providing actually end-to-end -end solutions to help companies, hospitals and pharma companies to deal with this genomic data. All the way from actually sourcing cohorts, for instance, something we do in collaboration with GMI in Ireland, to actually get high-quality data to measure both clinical data and then capture genomic information from, from individuals. But also, we provide sequencing services. In, we, in Shanghai, in China, we have a CLIA laboratory, the first CLIA laboratory in China, and we also have now sequencing laboratories in the US. And then we provide data management solutions, which will sort of be my focus today, as well as AI solutions and services for pharma companies. And we provide uh, our sort of data platform in the cloud, and this is sort of a high-level overview of our application stack. We have uh, both clinical and research applications that tap into our APIs, and they typically then tap into data from patients that the customer has, as well as knowledge bases that are used to interpret the, the data from the patients. And this is all stored in our proprietary Gore database, which, which I will talk about later on, which then uses the uh, scalable file system. And, and today we are using the NetApp Cloud Volumes file system. This is a very sort of highly scalable database and very IO thirsty, so we need a very powerful database under the hood. Uh, this infrastructure, we have this set up in AWS in a highly secure HIPAA and CLIA compatible manner. We have a, a, like a, you know, pay a lot of focus on providing, you know, secure networking into the system, which can only be achieved through a bastion system. And then we have uh, load balancers and uh, gateway systems for outbound connections. And we also then see on this picture, we have the Gore database, which actually uses elastic, you know, basically application-specific elastic scaling, and also some other 
sort of more batch processing workers, and we are using also conventional relational database services to manage all kinds of metadata and clinical information from the patients. And then we, uh, for the NFS file system, we tap into the you know, cloud volumes, which are then co-located in the AWS uh, cloud. And so one of the key reasons why we have chosen to, to place our systems in Amazon is that Amazon is, of course, you know, highly scalable and reliable system that is battle-tested now for many years, but it's also widely available. And so we have our businesses not only in, in, in the US, but also in China and in, in Europe. And so being able to provide these solutions in the correct region is very important. And it's also compliant with all the most rigorous sort of security standards and uh, has a rich ecosystems of solutions, which, for instance, we are leveraging today with, with the NetApp cloud volumes. And, and then not, not the least important thing is that our customers actually ask us to be there. So it's it probably still the most popular uh, you know, cloud today. But our applications are both covering uh, clinical use cases as well as research. And actually, the, the line between clinical work and research is actually becoming more and more blurry these days because of the nature of the sequencing technology, which I mentioned before, because you actually are capturing mutations that have not been characterized before. So even in the clinical space, such as when you're dealing with somantic mutations in cancer, you have to try to characterize those mutations by comparing them with other data that is possibly available in other patients of similar, with similar disease. But when, for instance, it comes to pharma companies, pharma companies like to use this type of genomic information to be able to find new pathways, find mutations that are closely or located within genes that give them leads to new so-called disease pathways, new targets for drug compounds. They might also want to take existing candidate drug uh, targets that they have derived from other means and try to validate them because it's actually very important in the pharma to be able to sort of fail fast, as it's called. You don't want to take a, a target into further in the, in the pipeline when you have to use multiple patients and the, actually the cost of running the trial becomes much more costly in the later stages. So being able to cut them quickly is, is important. And then finally, they also like to characterize why drugs might not have the proper efficacy or side effects. Are there certain mutations that are causing bad outcome in a clinical trial to so-called drug rescue? So there are multiple uses for genomic data for, for the pharma industry. They might also want to use technologies, not just sort of classical statistical approaches as we have built into our platform, but also use some of the latest AI technologies. And we have a team of, uh, that is applying sophisticated deep learning algorithms uh, to characterize genomic data, not only germline data, but also multi-omic data using methylization, RNA data, etc. And they have, for instance, come up with a very sophisticated model to, to predict you know, survivability based on, on for cancer patients. But when it comes to the clinical space, the sequencing data opens up lots of opportunities, especially in the sort of important you know, rare diseases. And rare diseases are defined diseases where, where the prevalence or the frequency of the disease is less than one in a thousand. So, but they are still very important because there are so many of these different rare diseases. So there are over, no, over 7,000 actually rare diseases that are sort of known and tabulated. And so it's still believed that even though these are rare diseases, the accumulated impact of rare diseases in populations is reaching over 10% of, of people in the population. And in doing the analysis, in the, in the early days, you would typically only, you would, basically a physician or pediatrician might hypothesize what's wrong with the child and go after a gene that might have been discovered in the past and do so-called Sanger sequencing, sequencing a part of the gene or possibly a handful of genes. And with that data, it would be easy for them to sift through the variation data that would come from the clinical laboratory 
and try to understand if they found some interesting mutation that might be the causative mutation. But today, you can measure the entire genome, as we talked about, very swiftly. So now, the main task for the physician is to provide as comprehensive clinical picture as possible, allow the analysis to be much more data-driven than the analysis in the past. And there are multiple ways to do that. One is to use, you know, for instance, AI technology to capture facial symptoms in children. But the key thing here is to get this good clinical picture and capture the signs and symptoms, both to guide the analysis of that patient, but also to build up databases allowing you to improve on the analysis in, for future patients, you know, provide rich data for you know, all kinds of uh, statistical and AI technologies. And as an example of a, of a story, we sequenced many years back when we were starting uh, two twin sisters. This was actually in Iceland. And uh, they both had, um, suf were suffering from blindness, so-called uh, uh, Brown-Violetta von Leer syndrome, and both blindness and deafness. And uh, they had not been diagnosed properly, and we took their data and did the whole genome sequencing. And so when we looked at the mutations between these two sisters, there were about 1.8 million data points that they were both harboring. And if we then filtered out the frequent mutations, which are very unlikely going to be high-impact causative, and when we also classified them based on certain models of how they are sort of located within the genes, we reduced the data set down to 1,400 mutations. Then prioritizing you know, in the genes that are most likely to be related to the diseases, and then comparing the mutations with the mutations in the parents, and we knew also that this disease was showing so-called recessive inheritance patterns. So we insisted that the mutations were homozygote. We came up with a single mutation, applying all these kind of filtering technologies. And what you are actually seeing here on the slide is the raw data from these uh, four individuals, the two sisters and the parents. And what you see in the sisters is that there's a consistent mutation because they are receiving this mutation both from, their from both of their parents, whereas both of the parents were only so-called heterozygote. They had only one damaged copy of the gene. So they were not suffering from this. But actually, it turned out in this case that both of these um, sisters could be treated with just an overdose of, well, not an overdose, but a much higher dose of, of vitamin B. So uh, this is an example of how you can actually, well, not always, but in many cases, you know, inter intervene if you have information like this. And there's an interesting side story on this is that we actually, at the time, we looked in the entire database of Icelanders at DECOD for these same mutations. And there was only one uh, possible scenario. I actually, DECOD is able to go back in generations. And there was only one scenario where there was a possibility of homozygosity of this mutation. Uh, and that was uh, a family several generations back. But what we knew from the genealogical databases in Iceland was there was an early child death in those families. So even if we did not have the clinical data of them, we could still see that this information was very much consistent with the, the pictures that we have been drawing up of this, of this case. So here we see the, the mutation. And so in the rare diseases, the it's very important to be able to share data across institute because, as I said, the diseases are very rare. So having similar cases from other institutions is very important. And it's really, in the rare diseases, you're really improving the sort of the specificity of, of your analysis a lot. Whereas if you go into the common diseases where you're dealing with thousands of patients typically, you sort of hit the the sort of the diminishing return of, of having more data. But in rare diseases, it's extremely important to be able to collaborate. And so this is why we are building mechanisms into our clinical systems to allow uh, physicians and institutes to share information about mutations seamlessly, both so-called manual curations, but also being able to share aggregated statistics and even go as far as sharing the full cases, even though that typically involves uh, proper consenting on, on behalf of the patients. Uh, and uh, 
just as an, as a sort of like a quick study, an example of the value of being to look at lots of data. We have uh, people at the Boston Children's Hospital in, in uh, which are, have been using our, our systems, and they have actually going back to cases that have not been able to diagnose in the past within epilepsy. And by looking at the, the sort of the, the volume of these patients, they have come up with several genes that are showing uh, consistent mutation load in over 30% of, of their patients. So they're basically getting a further insight into the disease of epilepsy. So now I'm going to talk a little bit more sort of about the technological sort of aspects of our system. And uh, sort of the key thing there is, is our GORE database systems. It's a relational database, but specifically built to deal with the genomic data, the special use cases in genomics, but also the nature of, of the updates of the, you know, the, the sort of the, it's not the standard transactional database, whereas you are typically dealing with data updates that are, you know, for a single individual, for instance, if you're adding that patient into a database, you're getting five million rows at the time. So we, we basically designed it for those types of workloads. And we actually built a, a sort of declarative query syntax into that system, which is also slightly different than the conventional uh, SQL, but it's essentially a combination of the Unix pipe syntax and SQL. And it provides a, a very powerful way of adding, for instance, novel commands into the system. But the key architecture is the sort of the genomic, consistent genomic ordering, I would say. Not only is the data stored in genomic order on the disk, but it's actually treated throughout the whole execution engine as genomically ordered to minimize sort of memory footprint and all kinds of, of, of things like that. And it also uses so-called bucketed architecture. So, so you are storing the data for individual patients, both in individual partitions, but also so-called bucket partitions, providing basically a good compromise between use cases where you're accessing very few patients and accessing bigger cohorts. And, uh, and so, you know, it, because of the genomic ordered architecture, we can do extremely fast joins. And so it also allows us to set up the database more in sort of a normalized fashion, like you do in, in conventional databases, as compared to using only denormalized uh, data structures, giving much more flexibility for updating the database schema, etc. And it has built-in parallelization, both along the genomic axis as well as the partition axis, and has elastic scaling, as I mentioned. So it, it allows you to run very large uh, queries for very big data sets. And so this is an example of how we represent uh, mutations typically for like patients, one row per mutation per patient. But we also support alternative model that I re refer to as horizontal models that are more suited for like cohort analysis when you need to feed the data into statistical algorithm in a much more efficient way from the database. And actually we are running the statistical algorithms inside the database, allowing them to benefit from this data representation. So there is in a way a lot of flexibility when it comes to the data model. Here is a sort of showcase query from Google Genomics exploring data using Google BigQuery, which is somewhat analytical to like Spark SQL. And what you see then on the right side is the equivalent query in our Gore pipe syntax. So you see it's actually much more succinct, uh, concise uh, syntax, even though it's doing exactly the same as the corresponding SQL query. And using elastic scaling in the Amazon cloud, we run this through about 140 million mutations in less than five seconds. And this actually is not that interesting query, calculating so-called transition transversion ratio, so it's a single full scan on a table and doing no joins or uh, aggregation, but it still goes to show the sort of the, the syntax from SQL compared with the SQL, no, with the so-called core query pipe syntax. And here is actually a comparison with the Spark SQL uh, engine, which is uh, a data, sort of big data analytics platform that is very popular. But it was a, it's a general purpose data analytics platform, not specifically designed for genomics. And here we are actually comparing several use cases, all of them except the latest one. The latest one is actually this query that I showed you before. 
but all the other ones are doing join in some of one way or another. And actually, the use cases where our architecture beats Spark SQL by far is in doing joins across the genome. For instance, if you want to retrieve mutations in certain segments in the genome, let's say based on copy number variations or something like that, and you want to find mutations that overlap, then these types of queries are much more efficient in, in our architecture. And uh, as an example, we calculated um, a query uh, involving basically calculating so-called allele frequency, basically the population frequency of mutations, which is a very important number to know about mutations, in a data set of 100,000 individuals. Uh, so we were basically doing an analysis of uh, somewhere close to 200 million mutations in about 100,000 individuals. And so it's essentially a query that is touching 20 trillion rows. This was a query that we tested using so-called self-managed storage in the cloud. And we were actually never to complete it fully because of a very high IO load on, on the system. We're actually using over, uh, I think we're using close to 1,000 cores running this analysis on, on top of the file system. But when we, then we migrated these 50 terabytes of data, into NetApp cloud volumes. And then we were actually able then to run this query in uh, less than 45 minutes, which was something that we were extremely happy with. Uh, but overall, we have been doing comparison with the self-managed storage and our NetApp uh, cloud volume setup, and typically been seeing performance differences in the order of like threefold differences. But it's not just the performance, it's also the simplicity of the setup the reliability, because as you, soon as you have multiple self-managed storage volumes, just managing that and the fault tolerance of that is much less than of the rate six setup that NetApp provides uh, in the system. And as I mentioned, onboarding the data was very easy and management of the solution, backups, providing snapshot capabilities, etc., is something that we don't have in the other uh, setup. So I'm going to leave it at here and give the floor to you. Yep. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually going to demonstrate uh, what cloud volumes looks and feel like. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, So Haukon talked about how easy the, uh, the transition was from a self-managed NFS. I mean, they, they did try, of course, other solutions such as EFS, but they ended up building their own NFS uh, stack with attaching EBS volumes. So we've actually been running this uh, for a selected customer. This hasn't been publicly available until uh, basically now. Uh, but we've been running and doing all these workshops with uh, uh, our preview customers or our private offering customers. And we were lucky enough that we actually got all different uh, sorts of workloads that uh, we, uh, we actually went after. I mean, for example, genome sequencing, something that hasn't traditionally been able to run in the public cloud, SAP HANA, rendering for DreamWorks, there's a lot of different workloads that we have actually been able to address with this solution. So it's basically just you sign up via the marketplace, and then it gives you access to the Cloud Volumes UI. It is important to state that, uh, that uh, everything in the UI is stateless. So every single action that I take within the system is an API call. So when I, uh, when I go into create a volume, Let's say this is my first volume. I am actually presented with all the available regions that I have actually subscribed to this service. So as you can see, I'm in uh, Asia Pacific, I'm in EU and Europe, and then three uh, uh, locations in, uh, in US. So if I, if I create a uh, volume, can't even see this. And I can, for example, choose here because I've actually tied these two regions together. So I can, I'm actually going to spin it up in, uh, in the West Coast, US West 1. 
we actually automatically generate the volume path. Uh, I can actually name it to whatever I want, but you can actually see that we actually have a random name generator that actually creates the volume path. The reason why we did that is we are all lazy developers, so we want to auto automate everything, so this just saves us a, uh, a line in our code instead of having to uh, publish or, or create that volume path in our script. We can actually allow the system to actually automatically name uh, all the volumes. I can even skip the name. It will actually then pick a random name when I basically just create the volume. Here's another differentiator from other services. I can actually restore or revert from an existing snapshot within the system. And it's actually been really interesting seeing, for example, our customers like, uh, like Wuxi, they have actually been taking full advantage of this because it's really important for data scientists uh, to always be working on production data sets, not be lacking behind production. So they are actually using this feature to clone and copy all of their existing workloads. For example, if they want to move a, a, a volume and mount it for production, testing, staging, development, they can actually do this automatically with a script via the API. We also offer, here's another differentiator, we also offer different service levels or performance tiers of, uh, uh, of cloud volumes. For example, standard offers 16 megabytes per second per terabyte. So it actually scales very linearly. Uh, and it costs 10 cents a gigabyte. And that's pretty much on par with EFS performance today. That's the, the, the standard, or even surpasses it. Premium is 64 megabits a second per terabyte, and the extreme is uh, 128 megabytes per second per terabyte. And for example, when, and this is all dynamically changeable, so I can actually figure out when my peak workload is about to happen, and I can automatically switch it to, from, from standard to premium to extreme. That's a very unique thing in cloud. For example, Wuxi Nextcode with moving uh, their for, uh, core DB, which is roughly around 40 terabyte, right? 40 or 50 terabytes. They are actually able to pu uh, push and read from uh, or do 6.6 gigabytes of throughput, which is yeah, pretty much unmatched uh, in the cloud. Here you have the allocated capacity. So even though I don't need uh, uh, 50 terabytes, I can actually scale so it actually multiplies the performance. So I can actually say here eight, and if I'm doing eight, I'm doing eight, I'm actually doing eight, meg uh, uh, eight times 64 megabits a second for premium, or eight times 128 megabits a second for, for standard, uh, for uh, extreme. We do support tags and labels. So I can tag this production or database, and I can do mass action based on uh, our, our tags and labels via the API, for example. We do support uh, export policies, so you can actually uh, 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 sort of put your egress and ingress uh, rules here, what hosts or IP range is allowed to mount the volume, and you, we do support up to five export, policy per, uh, export policies per volume. So if I want this to be a cluster, I can add two different other nodes that only have read only, have only read-only access to it. We also do support SMB and dual protocol from the same volume. So you can actually service both Linux and Windows workloads from the same volume to date, which is also very unique. We offer snapshot policies. So for example, if I wanted to do a weekly uh, uh, Snapshot policy, I want to retain five of the latest snapshots. I want to do it twice a week and do it uh, and have it run 12.30 every night. And then I basically just go and create the volume. Here we are basically automating what the traditional storage admin tends to do. Here we are actually setting up the aggregate. We're creating the SVM. We are, set, we are setting the, the, uh, the uh, the appropriate export policies, and we are uh, uh, attaching the uh, VLAN to it. 
And once that is done, it actually comes up with an export path. Now it's available. And there is no difference for us in, in creating a 100 terabyte volume or a 8 terabyte volume, like I did. It's basically 10 seconds and, and, and you're up and running. We wanted to make it really, really simple for the end user to actually mount the volume. Can you actually see this? Is it too small? So I can basically associate to an EC2 instance that I have running. And then basically copy and paste. Here I'm copying and pasting the, the performance optimized mod, mod, amount command. And here, here, here you can see the, the dot snapshot folder. That is very traditional for the ONTAP storage system. You can manage the volume from the, the UI. For example, if I go into the volume, I can actually change all of these. For example, if I want to change on, on the fly the tags, if I want to change the allocated capacity, need one more terabyte, everything happens on the fly. It goes into updating. As soon as it does the, the, the health check, it basically returns that it's available. And I can do the same thing with switching performance levels. Now it's done. So for example, I can switch the performance level from premium to extreme dynamically as well. And we actually have a, a scheduler or a placement policy algorithm that actually detects if the controller can meet the performance level that you chose. If it doesn't, it actually does a live migration to a controller that can actually handle the load. So, so that we, we are offering an SLA on a storage service in, in the cloud. I can take on-demand snapshots, and I'm only taking the delta. If I create a snapshot here, for example, this is not a full copy. This is actually only the delta, and it does it incremental according to the schedule. This snapshot here that I'm making on-demand actually resides outside my, my, uh, my schedule, my, my snapshot policy. So it actually resides. So here again, if you're going into an update, you can easily snapshot and then really quickly revert back if something goes wrong. You can edit the snapshot, uh, the export policy, the snapshot policy, and we wanted to make it really easy for you, for you guys to actually synchronize or migrate from on-premise to the public cloud. And here we are actually basically setting up a data broker. That's basically a cloud formation template that actually spins up and spins up that data broker. We are completely hands-off from the data broker. It, it runs and resides within your account. And as long as you have network activity, for example, Wuxin Xcode used this to move from their NFS server uh, homemade NSF server to, uh, to, uh, to uh, cloud volumes. The difference here is you can actually use this for one-time migration, or you can actually use this uh, uh, to, to keep the data continuously in sync. So you can actually continuously keep the data in sync, and you can actually choose which, if the volume is the source or which is the target, and you can sync both ways from on-premise into the public cloud or from two different NFS mount points. What is actually coming, coming here is we will be supporting the NFS protocol, SMB protocol, and moving back and forth from object storage. You can choose to actually have it if it actually deletes the volume, if then it actually keeps the source as the source of truth. So anything you, you add on the target, if it's inconsistent with what the, resides on the source, it will always rectify that and delete the volumes that are actually going on, 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 on the target. But you can choose to do that. We have, uh, you can actually see a knowledge base, and you can actually activate the NetApp's 24-7 uh, uh, support. The API access is really simple. It's always presented here. And if I wanted to go and, uh, and uh, uh, switch over to Ireland, 
for example here, we don't actually store any API or secret keys of our customers. Everything is a secure token with OAuth. And, and, and the OAuth bridge is basically the NetApp Cloud Central. And now I'm in Ireland. I don't have any volumes there. But you can seamlessly switch between. The, the, the performance uh, uh, is, is great, of course, but it's also the data management capabilities, being able to clone, restore from clones, snapshot individual volumes. Don't do a full copy, like in all the public clouds and in AWS. When you actually do an EC2 snapshot or an EPS snapshot or an EFS copy, it's always a full copy. We actually have it as just the delta, and you can revert from that any time, at any given time. If you have any questions or anything, we would be happy to answer them. Or if you have any questions for how come? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So this is for the genomics portion. Yep. I have a question about how the database was laid out. So like on the y-axis, you had genomic coordinates, and then on the x-axis, you had partition. Uh, so is that partition by patient? So each column is a patient. And so how would you get, um, how would you reflect different mutations or different variants for each patient? So you have like A or T, how do you, uh, how do you accommodate the A and the T in the database? Okay. Uh, actually, I would just like to, Answer that by showing. By showing, if, that's, that's if, always if, best. Um, if technology allows. Uh, just plug in here. So, so basically, um, it's not up yet. Maybe, maybe I need to switch. Yeah, it's two. No, no. Okay. Do you want to better? Yeah, if you yeah. can. Do you know how that? Where's the mouse? Microsoft Update. Of course, it went on the other screen. You're getting closer? Getting closer. Okay. There we are. <laughs> so, um, to answer, answer your point, so, so basically, we, we can support all kinds of storage models, although the core database, the genomic data tables, they, they insist there is a consistent way of representing chromosome and position. But other than that, it's very free. However, we use conventional sort of representation of storing uh, mutations. And uh, let's see, did it go? Bingo here on. Start that again. And, uh, yeah, so, so are you familiar with the, the so-called VCF format? Yes. So we are using uh, representations that are very similar to that. However, in, in the VCF uh, notation, uh, there's a, uh, at least the convention is to use so-called locus notation where we have all the mutations overlapping a particular locus representing a single row. We, however, do that based on allelic representation where a single row is always just one type of an allele. We can do both, but, but having, having that representation, we can, uh, we can use join to look up all kinds of information on the allele. So as an example, if, if I would do a query on uh, on uh, like reading data of, this is actually a table with mutation data from 100,000 individuals. So if I would do top like 10,000 here, now I'm basically fetching rows um, 
from, uh, from 10,000 individuals. And what you see is the chromosome position and the reference, you know, and the alternative allele. And then call copies is basically what we call, you know, whether it's homozygote or not. So it's one, one or, or, or two. And then call ratio, depth, and the patient ID. We could have as many columns as we choose to. And so there is nothing fixed here. We typically, these are the t columns that we typically have in it, you know, but, but we can do it the other way around. And so actually, when I make this query, the system is actually choosing, choosing behind the scenes whether to fetch this data from individual files or from the so-called buckets. And that depends on the selectivity in terms of patients, which access is more efficient. So that is essentially what the system is deciding behind the scenes. Does it make sense? Yes. Uh, why use that? Oh, it was just a, a, an example. So it was it was a showcase query for Google Genomics, and they demonstrated that using Google BigQuery. But um, so actually, to really sort of outline uh, a query that some similar to the ones that I showed you, where I was comparing with Spark SQL. So as an example, if I would make a query that would uh, fetch exons, so here I have a table with all the exons, basically a reference data table, and so it's essentially fetching, you see here, close to one million rows, okay? Uh, and, and so these are basically all the ensemble or refgene exons. I don't remember exactly which of them it is. I think it's the ensemble representation of exons. Now let's say I would filter, for instance here, where where gene symbol symbol is, well, I could like just use a similarity rather than exact and say BRCA as a BRCA something. You know, now I would get all the exons from the BRCA genes. Okay, and this was essentially a full scan on that genome. I could go for a single chromosome using a special sort of chromosome sort of scoping syntax with a position flag, so th this was considerably faster. Uh, for instance, uh, if I would like to now join this data set with data from the dbSNP table, and the dbSNP table has over 100 million rows, and so I'll just show you how efficiently that the system does that. So now I'm doing a, a join, and I'm joining segments with SNPs, and I'm joining it against the dbSNP table. So this is a table representing 100, over 100 million mutations from the dbSNP database. And so, so you see it's actually doing that extremely efficiently. And the reason is because the system is skipping between so-called streaming join and seek join. So it does that automatically based on sort of the nature of, of the data. And the, and the interesting part is Wuxi actually has, Wuxi Nextcode has performance uh, comparison with almost all uh, databases or, or big query systems or analyst systems that are actually running in the public cloud. So it's actually really impressive to see what they have done. I mean, they basically went ahead and created their own genome sequencing database. So uh, and uh, and uh, it's, it's pretty amazing to see the comp performance comparisons and uh, the query result and the time for results. So. Uh, yeah, I asked Haukon the same thing. Why, why are you guys creating your own database? It's a lot of work, but I mean. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> so it, it, it kind of happened. So we, we, this evolved at Ecol Genetics because we were one of the very first players to deal with this massive amount of genomic data. So we started sequencing over 40,000 individuals. And then at Ecol, we then had array-based data on the most of the population, so we were able to actually to impute sequence variation data into many hundred thousand individuals. So we needed a, a very effective storage for that, and at the time there was nothing available. And so we basically just went ahead and started building something to help, help us. Uh, and and when, they, uh, when they started their cloud journey, they, they, they really uh, went out and tried all these different solutions. And uh, they always came back to the GoreDB or their homemade database. And uh, th that's actually been a 
like uh, because we we've, we've been speaking together on on a lot of different uh, events and the core db has is always the thing that sparks the most interest sparks hey i did a pun it's better than spark right <laughs> better than spark yeah so i mean i would say this feature the genomic join the efficiency of that that's i would say one of the unique thing about the Gore database compared, for instance, with Spark, which is a general purpose, it uses shuffle join. So that is, even though it's pretty powerful, and, and actually it is very powerful when you apply it in brute force, but actually this query, for instance, that I was showing here, I was actually running a join with 3,000 segments in the genome against a data set of many hundred million mutations and doing it with actually very little effort. It was not using high parallelization, actually. So that's one thing. So the join is very efficient, and we can actually also apply this in parallel on different data sets. But the other thing is the database allows, uh, has lots of flexibility for updates. That's because of this bucket architecture that you talked about. And being familiar with VCF, you, you, there is individual VCF files, and then you have joint called VCF files. They tend to be one file for an entire population. And so if you want to add a single sample into that data set, you have to regenerate that file, essentially. So we have solved that using this bucket architecture. And so that's another part that is sort of built into the system, allowing for sort of updates that are not causing a total rewrite of the entire thing. And these, these are, of course, similar techniques as many people are applying elsewhere. And like, for instance, the Redshift database it does this in a certain way. It has an operation called vacuum. So it has like a delta uh, representation of the table. And then once in a while, you have to vacuum the database and basically clean it up a little bit. And then you are, in a way, reformatting that table. But our, our vacuum operation is, in a way, just one room at a time. And so it is, in that regard, it's incremental forever as compared to the vacuum. It's kind of always you need to clean the whole house if you can think about it that way. So it's a, it's a it's like, you know we, we we have done it in a slightly different way. Well, one of the things that uh, I was sort of missing from your slides is uh, the uh, predicted size of the sort of uh, genome sequencing space or the uh, uh, preventive medicine is 40 exabytes before 2020. That's one year from now. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. Uh, so it, it is certainly going to be big. <laughs> you know, uh, you know there, are, there are different schools of thought whether you know, you're going to have the entire sequence read data online or whether you only have the variation data. But mm -hmm. even, even just the variation data, and I believe you know, sequencing is going to be routine practice in hospitals. So you are going to see, you know, five million data points or more coming per individual, you know. And when you have database with many hundred or million people, that, that's going to be a huge data set. There was so, a question here as well. Yeah, are there any intentions to make this uh, available to others or perhaps open source it? Yeah, you mean the database technology? Yes. Absolutely. Actually, actually, it is available. Uh, we, we are, you know, both selling services and and solutions, but uh, when you touched on a, on, a, on a good point, the open source is actually something we are, we have a free version of a, of a small scale uh, version of the system, so you can actually experiment with it on your laptop, uh, but we are also actually contemplating uh, having an open source version of it mm -hmm. that is able to run in the cloud. Yeah, the Vuxi uh, is actually doing a lot of innovative things with uh, like uh, Gore Cube, which is actually running in Kubernetes and actually running through a service that we offer. It's called uh, NetApp Kubernetes Services, where they actually are attaching. It's kind of funny because uh, I, I joined NetApp through an acquisition. They bought our software company. And uh, we were probably one of the first companies in the world to actually commit to Kubernetes. And we've always been strong advocates of Kubernetes. And this is part of the reasons why NFS is making such a massive comeback. Because the way Kubernetes clusters are spun up today is there's an EPS volume that is attached to the host. There isn't a shared everything construct. And this is one of the reasons why partners 
uh, are actually getting our cloud volumes with uh, Trident to be able to have cloud volumes with their performance and the data management, uh, data management capabilities underneath Kubernetes. Uh, so that's how we are actually presenting the core cube that uh, they are actually uh, uh, the free version. So you can actually get GoreCube up and running in a matter of seconds on Kubernetes, but still attached to a shared everything, high performance uh, file system. Any other questions? Yep. Are, are there any plans to integrate this software or this solution with existing cloud-based electronic health records? Um, so that that information, when the time does come, it can be perhaps even accessed at the point of care? Yeah, uh, good, good question. So we actually have a, a system that we call clinical sequence analyzer, which is essentially intended for like clinical labs. But uh, we are also integrating like ordering system. So you saw probably the, uh, the, uh, the application for capturing the facial signs and symptoms of, of kids. That is essentially a, a tool to capture clinical information and provide that with an order for diagnostic tests. So we have integrated that system. It's a, from a company called Face2Gene. And likewise, we are delivering back clinical report from clinical labs into that system. And so that is in a way the first step in allowing our clinical systems to be connected into the physician's sort of space through a, you know, web-based systems. But we are also looking at so-called smart on fire technology to allow our system to be more just part of the EMR platform, if we can say so. I mean, essentially that is a technology to convert uh, EMR uh, systems into a platform technology. So we are looking at that as, as a way of data source for extracting the clinical data more automatically rather than having the physician to, to type that in. And we are also actually then uh, looking at uh, ways of allowing our system more for than for research purposes to integrate with clinical warehouses. So where you have actually Typically, you have the clinical data stored in SQL systems. And now, actually, people are playing with, for instance, Spark SQL as a means to query clinical data in, uh, for instance, in the cloud. And we are actually working on an integration with our Gore engine so that you can actually run both Spark SQL queries and Gore queries interchangeably. So you can use Spark SQL for the clinical analytics and then bundle that with a query that, for instance, retrieves certain mutations from certain pathways or genes or whatever, et cetera, leveraging Gore where Gore is good. And then you can treat this as a, as a single kind of query engine. And I, I just wanted to mention here, because of sort of the difference, uh, one difference between the Gore system and, for instance, the Spark engine is, Versus we use the Gore system to power our genome browser. So these are queries that are typically you know, very small in, in uh, well, depending on how big region you have. But for instance, now I'm drilling into the genome and the, the genome browser is actually fetching sequence read data about individuals. And so this is actually calling the database. So these are short-lived queries. And I can, for instance, then you know, right-click here and go and, and actually open it up and see the sequence read data in, in the browser. So basically, here you see it's actually reading data in the so-called BAM format. So BAM format is as, ex, exactly a special version of a core format in principle. We, we just do a minor tweak on that format to allow it to be represented in the core system. So we are not rewriting sequence reads because these are bulky files. So we keep them intact in the BAM format or the CRAM format, or actually we have other adapters for, for other sequence reads formats. Same goes for VCF. We can read VCF natively uh, as, as long as it's ordered and has a topics index. But we then also have the option to convert them into our sort of tabular structure because we tend to dislike attribute value representation of information and rather like to store it in a columnar way, allowing you to use filtering mechanisms and join in a more sort of natural relational way, as I like to call it. 
So we try to have the experience more like you are using a SQL database than, than uh, specialized sort of tools. Yeah, so we are basically out of time. Thank you so much for coming, and thanks for all the questions. Thank you.